So again, welcome to all of you that are joining us online. It's good to be with you all today. It's good to start the week with all of you today. After a rough week, it's good to be together. Good to talk today, continue the series that we've been talking about of the, asking the question of what story are you going to tell? Back in the late 90s, a book came out called the... Um, it's not good. My sermon is beginning. I forgot the book I'm referencing. <laughs> Adversity Quadrant. This book came out in the late 90s that wanted to analyze why are some people successful while other people fail. It was a secular book, but they wanted to determine why are some people succeed and other people given the same opportunity didn't succeed. They kind of failed. So they looked at people who started kind of had the same starting line. They looked at like people that grew up in a tough neighborhood. Why would some kids join a gang and the other kids might overcome some of the obstacles in life and move back into the neighborhood and help the neighborhood? Or they would look at entrepreneurs who kind of started with the same capital, started with the same income and the same opportunities, and some would fail and some would succeed. They looked at athletes. Some who had kind of the same talent and ability, some would succeed and some would fail. They try to figure out what makes a successful person. And we kind of think, well, it's probably the person, probably their education. That's probably going to contribute to it. And they'd say, well, maybe it is like their emotional stability. Maybe it's the background. Maybe they have a lot of family and friends who support them. While all of these things are very important, none of these were what separated the successful people from the non-successful people. In this book, and all this research, they found out the one thing that separates successful people and non-successful people is how they dealt with adversity in their life. How they dealt with the challenges and obstacles in their own life would determine if they're going to be successful or not. I mean, their, their education was important. Their experience was important. All these things were very important, but the deciding factor was most often how a person would deal with adversity. And I think we listen to those results and we say, okay, kind of makes sense in some way, but I think in some ways it's frustrating for us because we like to look at adversity and we don't like to say to that, yeah, that, that's going to be a good influence in my life. We don't like to look at challenges and say, well, that's going to be good for me unless usually our role is kind of our, our, the way we operate is if I didn't have any challenges, I would be so much better off. We're kind of risk adverse and we want to get rid of all challenges instead of realizing that these challenges and difficulties in our life might actually be what is as a setup for us to be successful. We usually operate to try to get rid of any obstacles in our life. I like the words of Jesus when he said to his disciples in John 16, 33. He said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are going to have obstacles. You're going to have hard and difficult things that are going to come your way in life that you are going to have to deal with. But I want you to remember, I'm stronger than any obstacle that you're going to face. Jesus' words to his disciples was, I have defeated anything that you're going to face. So therefore, you can have peace and confidence that I'll fight the battle for you. So last week, we started this series talking about vision. Talking about what is the vision for Lake Effect Church. Oh, it's cutting out. Sorry, we're a microphone problem. Trey's uh, got that. We're switching microphones here. So I'm going to microphone three. All right. We'll see how this goes. You're not going to be able to move much. 
All right, so, we're, so I wanted to talk about vision, talk about vision for Lake Effect Church. It's kind of the beginning of the year. This is normally the time that you're going to talk about, about vision and kind of what we're up to. And All right, is that working better? Sorry, this is especially you that are home. Hopefully, let me just get a minute, make sure it's tested well. Doing good, Trey? All right. So we're going to want to talk about vision, because that's kind of normally what churches do. The beginning of the year, you're going to have a good sermon. You're going to talk about vision. What is the purpose of the church? What do we kind of want to do this year? Now, while that is all important, I think it's important for us to take a step back and say, okay, what has God called us to do as individual followers of Christ? What does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? Because sometimes we can get ahead of ourselves in talking about what is our collective vision together. If we're not concentrating on what does it actually mean to be an individual follower of Jesus Christ. So we talked about that last week in our message. We talked about what is it like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? I told you last week in my message that kind of my, my starting point of this message was that old hymn I remember listening to in church that says, we have a story to tell to the nations. And that song has four verses. First, verse one is, we have a story to tell to the nations. We have a song to be sung to the nations. We have a message to give to the nations. And we have a savior to show to the nations. See, that is what God has called us to do. When God called his disciples in Mark 1, verse 16, he said, follow me. We talked about that last week. What does it mean to follow Jesus? But then he continues and he says, I will make you become fishers of people. How are we going to do that? What are we going to say to other people? What story are we going to tell other people about who Jesus is? Some of you have been around Lake Effect Church since the beginning, and you kind of know how I came up with the name of Lake Effect Church. Some of you are new to Lake Effect, so let me just take a minute or so to kind of explain that to you. Some of you might remember about five or six years ago, I was bringing our two youngest kids to school. And I was in the little carpool lane dropping them off. And in front of me was a car that, with a bumper sticker on it that said Lake Effect CrossFit. I thought, Lake Effect, that's a good name for a church. Somebody shouldn't have a plant a church and call it Lake Effect. So I got home and I said to Beck, isn't that a kind of a cool name to call a church Lake Effect? And she looked at me and said, that's a good idea and you need to plant it. Well, that wasn't the first time we ever talked about church planting. Actually, 30 years ago, the first almost 30 years ago, the topic of church planting got brought up to me. I think most of you here and a lot of you watching online, you know Lynn Snyder. He's had a dramatic influence on my life and probably a lot of people here. Maybe if he hasn't had a direct influence on your life, he's influenced another person that's had influence on your life. And almost 30 years ago, he said to me, he said, Jack, I think the Lord's calling you to full-time ministry. Well, I was a little shocked because of what I was doing in my life and kind of how it really, really wasn't following the Lord too much, kind of in a banking career. So I ended up, well, through a lot of different circumstances that happened, but I ended up moving to Pasadena, California and going to seminary. So I graduated from seminary with the one goal to come back to Grand Rapids and to plant a church. And, oh, well, it's in seminary, a really good thing happened. I married my professor's daughter. So after I graduated, Becky and I moved to Colorado where I did an internship at a mega church. Then after I finished that, we, uh, I got a job at a smaller church with the understanding in three years they would send me back to Grand Rapids to plant a church. That was the plan. Well, that was the plan, but my timing was not right at all. That plan, that three years turned into about 20 years. But we eventually got back here, and I kind of thought the whole idea of planting a church was just kind of gone, that that would never happen because of circumstances in our life until, well, I'm driving the carpool lane, and I see a car that says Lake Effect CrossFit. And that's kind of how we got back to planting a church. 
See, I always like that name, Lake Effect. It's kind of a cool name. It's kind of, if you're from the Midwest area, yeah, Lake Effect kind of makes sense. Now, I know some of you are watching today from Florida, and you're probably wondering, what in the world is a Lake Effect? What does that even mean? See, a Lake Effect is simply this weather pattern that involves two elements. It involves water from a lake and wind. When these two elements meet together, water and wind, they create what is known as a lake effect. So if you're from Michigan, we hear a lot about lake effects because it has a big influence on our weather. Actually, it has influence on the weather in Michigan, a lot of the Great Lakes states, part of Canada, and even parts of Japan experience a lake effect. But normally in this region, if you talk to somebody about a lake effect, they immediately think lake effect snow. That's where you go to. So lake effect snow is actually warm water from Lake Michigan and a breeze, those two things together create lake effect, lake effect snow. But recently, somebody introduced me to a new term, lake effect fruit. I never knew there was such a term, that there's actually lake effect fruit. Some of you know our friend Sue Decker. She taught me about lake effect fruit. She grew up on an apple farm in Sparta. In this whole area of Michigan, this whole lower peninsula of Michigan, along the coast, is known as the fruit belt. Michigan is actually one of the states that produces one of the highest amount of fruit productions actually come out of Michigan. And the reason for it is because of the lake effect. But see, when we talk about lake effect, we think snow. We think inconvenience. We think, I don't like that weather. We think of an obstacle. We don't think about fruit production. We don't think about that too much because we're kind of focused on well, the part of a lake effect that we really don't like too much. See, a lake effect is nothing more than a weather pattern that changes the atmosphere. And so when I named it Lake Effect Church, kind of my idea was that that's a nice symbolism. You got the gentle water, which is a mark of the Holy Spirit cleansing, and then you got the wind of the Holy Spirit. Those two elements, they come together and they create change. But the truth is, when those two elements come together, it's not always gentle. Usually, it's a crash. Usually, that water that comes off, the evaporates off the lake, and when the wind comes together, it's not always gentle. Sometimes it creates a violent storm. But sometimes that violent storm also creates fruit. And we don't realize it because sometimes we're so scared of the adversity that we don't wait around to see the fruit that is actually produced. So you might say to me, well, how is a lake effect going to produce any fruit? How does that happen? See, part of a lake effect is that it controls the temperature of the lake. See, the lake effect controls the temperature of Lake Michigan. It also controls the temperature of some other inland lakes that we have around here. The temperature of Lake Michigan will control, for a large part, the temperature in the air around Lake Michigan, and that's actually a really good thing. See, the first thing that a lake effect does is that it delays spring in Michigan. Now you're all looking at me and saying, I don't like that. That's when we don't like a lake effect. See, what the lake effect does is that the, the water at the end of the winter is still pretty cool, and it keeps the land area around Lake Michigan pretty cool. And there's a purpose to that. If we had an early spring, the trees would start to blossom too early, and then in April when you get that late fall, all the new blossoms would be killed. All that early fruit that you saw happening would easily be killed by a little frost. So a lake effect is a very good thing. It keeps our temperature lower all spring until it's the right time. 
See, that's one of those storms that we don't like in our life because every one of us in this room, probably the majority of us, were guilty of the beginning of March saying, why can't it be 60 degrees? Why can't it be 70 degrees? Why can't it be 80 degrees? Why can't we start summer early? Well, that would be a nice thing, but you won't have any fruit to eat that later in the year. See, that's one of those storms that God gives us in our life that you don't get what you want when you want it, but eventually you're going to get it, but it's all because God's protecting you. You start blossoming too early, your blossoms are going to die in a few months because you're going to guarantee to get that late frost in April. And the lake effect is just constantly controlling the blossoming and the fruit trees. See, another thing that a lake effect will do, and this is the one that we like, the lake effect will keep our summer a little longer by giving us a warm fall. We like that part. We like those hot days that surprise us in September, especially when you're planning a wedding. And sometimes it can be very cold, and sometimes it's 80 degrees in the middle of September. It's an 80-degree day in October, and you wonder, now, how did that happen? See, Lake Michigan has the, usually it's warming up by the end of the summer, and it's going to keep Michigan warmer through the fall so we can continue our fruit production. See, if you took out Lake Michigan from Michigan, just got rid of that whole lake, what would happen in the fall is you'd get that cold air come down from Canada, and quickly we would have a very cold fall, and it would stop all the growth in our trees. So see, that's one of those benefits, one of those storms that God does that is really a good thing. We all kind of enjoy that storm. We all like to have that longer fall when we have those beautiful Michigan fall days. So then there's a third thing that the lake does. The third thing the lake does, it also keeps our summers a little bit cooler. This is kind of frustrating at times. There's times when you got that week's vacation and you rent that cottage on Lake Leelanau and you go there and the high temperature that week is 72. And that's a little frustrating because you want to go swimming and you want to go boating. But you know what that cold weather is doing? It's extending our fruit production. See, what our fruit trees in Michigan have a tendency to do is when the temperature gets above 85, they start to shut down production. Our apple trees and our peach trees and our blueberries, they don't like too much heat, so they're going to stop production. So what Lake Michigan does, it's going to cool off Michigan in the summer to help our fruit continue to grow. That's that frustrating part of a storm. You just don't get what you really want. But it's fortunately, God's not giving us what we want. Instead, God's saying, I'm more interested in you bearing fruit, and you have something to eat instead of you just being able to go swimming on the 4th of July. And then there's the fourth thing that Lake Michigan does, what the lake effects will do, is they prevent Michigan from being extremely cold in the winter. I know we think it's pretty cold right now in Michigan, but they say without the lake effect, we would have a lot of temperatures in the negative 10s and negative 20s. But Lake Michigan is always warmer than the air in the winter, so it's constantly keeping all the air around us much warmer. That's why our Michigan winters are not that harsh compared to what they could be. So that's kind of interesting what the weather does and what this lake effect does. But let's be honest, when it's snowing in March, we don't really think about apple production. We're kind of discouraged. We're a little frustrated. When we're at the cottage in the summer and it's only 72 degrees and you want to go swimming, you're not thinking about blueberry production. You're a little bit more frustrated than anything. We don't like sometimes weather. It seems like we're kind of conditioned here in the Michigan to weather is almost something we complain about more. 
Sometimes it's hard for us to see the benefits of weather when you're not getting what you wanted. But after all, when you think about it, such a dominant theme in the Bible is about fruit production. This dominant imagery that God gives us in the Bible that our lives are supposed to be like fruit that is growing and that we are called to bear fruit. But sometimes we don't see that own fruit that's producing in our life because we're so frustrated by the storm. We're frustrated because the storm is not doing what we wanted it to do. We're not always seeing what the storm is producing long term. That's why two weeks ago I I taught on James 1, verse 2 and 4, where James says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for joy. For you know then when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. When your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. See, when James was saying to the early church, he said that term of consider it all. Other translations say count it all joy. He's talking about an accounting term. See what James is saying to the church, add up all those storms in your life. But then write down all the fruit that's been produced in your life. Because at the end of the day, you're going to realize you have a whole lot more fruit than you have a lot of storms. James is saying to the church, don't, don't ignore the hard things in your life. But look at the fruit. Look what God has done with the storms in your life. Look at what God has produced in your life. See, James is encouraging us, take your eye off the storm and put your eye on the fruit that God is producing. But see, so often when the weather gets bad, we become like the disciples. And the first thing that we do is we think, God, do you not like me anymore? Do you not care for me? God, are you mad at me? God, what did I do wrong? That was the disciples' reaction to a rough storm. Listen to the story in Mark 4. Mark 4 from verse 35 to 41 says, As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and they started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we are going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. See, after a long day of ministry, Jesus said to his disciples, okay, let's get in a boat. We have to go to the other side. They had something to do on the other side of the lake. So Jesus gets in the boat, and apparently he's pretty tired, so he finds an area to take a nap in. Some say probably in the back of the boat, there's probably a little cargo area that maybe Jesus crawled into. Maybe he fell asleep among some of the fishing nets, put his head on maybe a a makeshift pillow. Maybe it was a bag that had some nets in it. And Jesus is laying down and he falls asleep, a pretty sound sleep. And the Bible says that suddenly a storm rose up. Now, this isn't just your average little storm, your little storm while you're in the middle of the lake. This is a violent storm. In the book of Matthew, Matthew calls the storm an earthquake. The same word that he uses to describe the earthquake when Jesus died on the cross is when Jesus rose from the dead. It's this this Greek word that means an earthquake. 
And actually one of the most dangerous places that you can be during an earthquake is in the water. Because in the water, you're going to have a chance of a tsunami or some kind of tidal wave, and the waters are going to be extremely rough. That's probably one of the scariest places that you could be during an earthquake. Now, we don't know exactly if it was a tidal wave or a tsunami, but we do know it was a terrible, rough storm. And earthquakes come out of nowhere. One minute, everything's fine, and the next minute, you have a rumbling in the earth, and you have violent waves, and you know it's not good when the boat's taking on water. And that is the exact situation that the disciples were in. One second, they are just cruising along the lake, just going fine. Jesus is sleeping. And suddenly you have a violent storm where the disciples are probably holding on for dear life, wondering, are they going to die? And the disciples are scared and they're panicking as you would expect them to be. And the first thing that they say to Jesus is, don't you care about us? Don't you care about us? We are about to die and there you are sleeping. I remember my first earthquake. It was my first year at Fuller. I was like, after I was at Fuller, probably just a few weeks. I heard about earthquakes. I'd never expected to experience an earthquake. I lived in this very cool apartment. I was in this old mansion that was on the campus of Fuller that was divided into about 10 or so apartments. And I had this little teeny studio apartment on the bottom floor. And one night at 3 in the morning, I wake up and everything is shaking. I'm watching my bookshelf shake, watching books fall off the shelf. I'm listening to my, my dishes in my kitchen rumble. I'm watching my bike fall down. It's one of the most scariest experiences because you don't know when it's going to end. And it is shaking and you're just wondering, is my whole building going to collapse? Literally, I ran out of my apartment. I'm standing on the lawn of Fuller watching my old house wondering, is it going to fall down? The craziest thing was the other 10 guys that lived in my house, they all slept through it. And literally, I'm standing on the campus of Fuller in my boxer underwear, just watching, going, does anybody else care? Does anybody else notice what's going on? It was a typical day in, in California where I'm hearing gunshots and I'm hearing dogs bark and there's helicopters everywhere. Life is going on, but we're in the middle of this huge earthquake. Now, the thing about an earthquake is you have that initial shaking. When it's done, it's not over. You're going to have an aftershock. So you might think, oh, yeah, that's done, but then you, about a second or two later, you're going to get another aftershock. And then you're going to get another aftershock, and it's scary. You don't know when it's going to be over. In fact, those aftershocks can go two or three days later on. It's that scary. I remember being in the grocery store three days after the earthquake, and we had an aftershock, and literally people are screaming in the store, running out of the store. It's scary. I can see the disciples. They had to be incredibly scared on that boat, wondering, are we going to die? These are experienced fishermen, but none of them could handle trying to navigate a boat in an earthquake. And so they go to Jesus, and the first thing is they're just yelling at him. They're literally yelling at him, don't you care? We're going to die. They're frustrated. They're scared. They're nervous. Jesus is just sleeping, and they're fearful. I think a lot of us experience a little bit of that fear and anxiety this week as we watch the news. As we listen to the news, we wonder, where is God in all of this? Where is Jesus right now? I can't believe this is happening before my very own eyes, and yet it's happening. That's a frustrating place to be. It's kind of like that place in the spring where it keeps snowing and snowing, and you wonder, are we ever going to get to a new season? 
think we're kind of feeling that this week. Is anything going to change or is it just going to get worse? And I think what had to be hard for the disciples in that situation is realizing they were following Jesus when this happened. He told them to get in the boat. And now they're in the middle of the most difficult storm they ever experienced in their life. And that's a frustrating place to be. And Jesus gets up. He's calm. He just looks at the storm, speaks to it, and immediately it's silent. And then Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, why are you so afraid? Don't you have any faith? He asks them two questions. One question about faith and the other question about fear. He says, what's going on right now? See, I think if I would have been in that boat, I probably would have got a little snarky. Kind of like, yeah, you might have known why I was so scared if maybe you weren't sleeping during that that earthquake. See, why are you so afraid? Why are you scared? Why are you panicking? That's a really good question. That's not just some rhetorical question. That's a very strategic question that Jesus is asking the disciples. And I think he's asking each one of us, why are you so afraid right now? See, I'll be honest, I don't like to answer that question. I don't want to answer that question. Because I think if I was in that boat with the disciples, I'd be saying, Jesus, why didn't you calm that storm before I got in the boat? I think sometimes we wonder that when we're in a difficult storm. We think, God, you had me get in that boat. You knew what was going to happen. Why didn't you calm that storm before I got in that boat? Or why didn't you say, let's go tomorrow instead of today? Or why didn't we have to take a different way to get to that location? You had me get in that boat. That's a frustrating and probably some of these disciples were saying, yeah, and I even got up this morning and I, and I extra had my time with the Lord. I prayed, I did my devotion, I asked God to protect me, and you led me right into the storm. I came close to dying. I'm still scared. I'm wet. I'm sitting in the boat. Yeah, you calm the storm, but I got water up to my ankles. And my guess, some of the disciples were hanging off the side of the boat throwing up. That was a pretty scary time to be in. See, I think sometimes our relationship with Jesus doesn't get further than where it's at right now when he asks the question of why are you so afraid? Because I think sometimes we're sitting back saying, no, I want you to answer my question first. Before I answer why am I afraid, I want you to answer my question. Because we're frustrated with what just happened. See, I'm not sure how Jesus is going to respond to that question if you ask him. But I think it's pretty interesting to watch the disciples' response to Jesus' question. They didn't answer him directly. See, they probably had a little bit of a ways to go, and they probably sat in that boat quietly and probably thought, huh, why am I so afraid? But then in verse 41, it says this powerful verse. Says the disciples were absolutely terrified. This is after he calmed the storm. And they said, Who is this man? And they asked each other, Even the wind and the waves obey him. See, they were terrified. 
They were shaken up. They were cold. They were wet. They were nervous. But they got to see a part of Jesus that day that they had never seen before. See, earthquakes in the Bible quite often bring revelation of who God really is. And that's what the disciples experienced that day. See, the storm opened the disciples' eyes to the fact that Jesus is in charge of the wind and the waves. They didn't know that before. They didn't know that the God who created is in charge of what he created. And that's what the disciples learned that morning. See, I think that's why we're afraid. Because sometimes we forget that the God who's in charge is in charge of what he created. I think we forget at times that the creator is in charge of what he created. Sometimes we forget that. Or sometimes we have a fear that God is just going to sleep through the storm. See, Jesus isn't sleeping that s- through the storm because he's oblivious to what's going on. Jesus is sleeping during that storm because he has such confidence that God will wake him up at the exact right time to do what he needs to do. That's why Jesus is sound asleep, because he knows that God is sovereign over the situation. Jesus knows he has nothing to worry about when God is watching over the situation. See, that's what the disciples learned that day, that God is more powerful than any situation that you're going to experience, and that God is not sleeping, and that God will get up at the exact amount of time, right time. See, in Isaiah 54, there's a prophetic word that's given to the Israelites. They're in a tough situation. They're in exile. And Isaiah says, but in that coming day, no weapon turned against you will succeed. You will silence every voice raised up to accuse you. These benefits are enjoyed by the servant of the Lord. Their vindication will come from me, for I, the Lord, have spoken. See, no weapon formed against any of you will prosper if you're a follower of Jesus. Why? Because the Lord has spoken. See, my words don't calm the storm. My panic doesn't calm the storms. My strategies don't calm the storm. My insight doesn't calm the storm. My education doesn't calm the storms. The storms only respond to one thing. And that's the voice of Jesus. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. Prayer is powerful because God is powerful. Prayer is simply us going before God and saying, I need help. I'm scared. I'm panicking. I'm nervous. I think I'm going to die. In Jesus' words, calm the storm. See, it's this book that calms the storms. In this book are the words of Jesus. When storms are happening in our life, the only way to silence a storm is this book. Nothing else will calm a storm. I love this promise that Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 16. And I can guarantee Jesus will answer this prayer for every single one of you whenever you ask. Anytime. He says, you did not choose me. 
I chose you, and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. I get whatever I need so I can bear fruit in my life. I'm not going to get 80-degree weather in March. That will not cause me to bear fruit in my life. I'm not going to get the hot summer days that I want because that will not cause me to bear fruit in my life. Everything I ask for, I will receive so I can bear fruit in my life. That's the goodness of God, and that's the grace of God. Could you imagine if God answered every haphazard prayer that we requested? We would have no fruit. We would have no trees. We might have warm weather, but we'd have nothing to eat. See, this is a promise from God in John 15, saying, I'm going to take care of you. I'll never fall asleep on you. I am up, and I am ready to help you in every single situation. You don't have to fear because you have Jesus' voice right in this book. Anything you read in this book will calm your storms. See, I asked you the question, what story are you telling? What story are you telling to people? I want to ask you another question. What story do you think people want to hear? See, what people want to hear from us is, how did you survive that storm? How did you make it through that storm? What did God do in your life so that you could succeed and not fail? That's what people want to know from us. That's what people want to know from the body of Christ. What is it? What is your story? What happened to you? How did Jesus transform your life? How did Jesus get you through that difficult season? That is what people want to hear from us. See, maybe some of you are in the situation right now. You're saying, Jack, I'm not experiencing a whole lot of peace. I feel like that earthquake hasn't stopped in my life. I feel like that storm is going, and I feel like I'm in a boat with two feet of water in it, and I feel like I am one second away from drowning. That's a good place to be because that makes you desperate for somebody to stop the storm. That makes you desperate to go to Jesus and say, you've got to help me. You've got to help me because I've been trying everything on my own and nothing is working. That's when you need to hear Jesus calm the storm. And maybe you're like, what, what, what calms the storm in here? I, I don't know. I did, in my sermon notes, they're available online. I, I did just leave a few verses for you. There's a lot of, though, every, everything in here will help calm the storm, but these are some that are just meaningful to me. You look at Isaiah 41.10. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's going to stop some storms in your life. 
because it's going to give you someone to hold on to. I can't guarantee every storm is going to stop just because you pray, but I can guarantee you can hold on to Jesus during any storm, and he will give you the stability that you need. See, this is a year that we trust in these words of Jesus because our life depends on it. We're all in that boat right now. We don't know when another earthquake's going to hit. I don't know when an aftershock is going to hit. I wish I could tell you they're all done this year. That's it. I wish I could tell you that. I won't be a very good pastor if I said that. But I can tell you that every promise is with you in the boat this year. So let's just continue as a follower of Jesus to say, God, help this book come alive to me. Because I think God's making us all a little bit extra desperate this year, so we do run to this book first. I think we've all learned this year that a lot of other things that maybe satisfied me don't satisfy me anymore. I'm not satisfied by maybe just other activities I did before that could calm me in the storm. We're recognizing we need Jesus to calm us in the storm. So let's have Jake and Libby come up and close us with two last songs. And while they're singing, you can stand and sing with them, or maybe you just need to sit and close your eyes and just meditate. And just think about that question. If Jesus said to you, why are you so afraid? How would you answer? Or if Jesus said, is your faith challenged right now? How would you answer? Jesus is not trying to shame any one of us. He's trying to help us increase our faith so we have confidence so we can get through the storm because his goal is that we all bear fruit. So Jesus, I thank you for today. God, I thank you for the power of the words of Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that your word says that no weapon formed against us will prosper and any tongues that rise up against us will be refuted because Jesus has spoken. God, I pray for each person listening to me, Lord, that you would calm storms in their life. But God, more than anything, God, help us to bear fruit. Lord, would you help us to become more and more like the image of your son? God, would you give us a desire and a hunger and a thirst to become more like Christ? God, in the next couple minutes as we just meditate and we just listen to the words of the song or participate, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work inside each of us. God, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is like the water in Lake Michigan that can influence us so that we bear fruit. God, I pray that the temperature of your Holy Spirit would just increase in our lives, Lord, right now to change us and transform us so that we can bear fruit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.